0: If you would, please turn to Acts chapter 11, Acts chapter 11. We are all going chapter 11 today for the last time. Uh, while you're turning there and the kids are finding the bingo picture, which is really easy to find today, um, I'd like to share some, some anecdotal evidence, if you uh, don't mind, that Crossroad Christian Church is already at least pointed the right direction with regard to today's topic. Um, the week before last, as, as y'all know, the Rona kind of swept through our house, sparing only Shannon. And, uh, and either either COVID or a, a similar in illness has hit several families uh, in the church. Some of them are still out, um, but a lot of us really got, got it at the same time. Um, but I was blessed by how many people checked on us and, and reached out to us um, during that time to see if, see if we needed anything. Um, we had, you know, offers for a meal, for groceries, um, It's just very encouraging. And, and it wasn't just about being the preacher's family either. Uh, when I got well again, I went and dropped by another family's house and, and they had said that, uh, that, that someone had already come and brought their prescriptions to them. And uh, it's just a, a real blessing um, to see this. I mean, so that's encouraging to me even before I preach this message. But that said, okay, I still believe that we will find ourselves challenged by this text. All right? and, and we're going to, to read it. We're going to discover what the Lord wants to reveal to us through it. So if you would, um, just please follow along with me. We got to stand up and move around, so I won't ask you to stand up and read. But just follow along with me as I read through today's passage. It's real short. Now, in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that, that would be, there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Father God, we just ask in Jesus' name for each person here. We pray, Father, that you will open our hearts and minds to be receptive to your word. We ask, Lord, that the seeds that are planted will take root and bear fruit in our lives, that people might see you in us, and that your name might be glorified, Lord, in the community here in McKinney, and also, uh, Lord, as as far as, as everyone from here uh, scatters to the four winds after church and, and, and they go back to their, um, their neighborhoods um, all, over, <laughs> all over North Texas, I just ask, Father, um, that they're able to carry the message with them, that they'll live it, and that people will see it, Lord, not, not for our glory, but so that you might be lifted up, so that your name will be honored and people will see just how great you are. And Father God, we pray that not one person leaves this place unmoved or unchanged in some way. By your message, please uh, speak through your your flawed uh, vessel, your flawed servant. I know your word is perfect and you are perfect, uh, but you speak to imperfect people through imperfect people, and uh, we praise you for that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, <clears throat> as usual, we're going to visit, revisit the passage a chunk at a time, uh, but but the first couple of verses are more of a setup, really, for the last two verses, which is where nearly all of the outline comes from. So for now, you are welcome to... You can write some notes, you know, if you want, and and just kind of sit back and listen. We're going to spend a few minutes on this first half. So so I'm going to read it again. Now in these days... Okay, remember, he's referring to when the Christians fled Jerusalem, and they kind of started to coalesce there in Antioch. Uh, Prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus, he he shows up later in Acts, um, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And then it says this took place in the days of Claudius. So uh, when he says this took place, Luke is referring to when the famine actually took place, which was after the events that he's describing here. Um, Now, Claudius was a Roman ruler um, from roughly 41 AD to 54 AD. And if we consider that Jesus was probably crucified and raised from the dead around 28 to 30 A.D., Uh, then Acts chapter 11 is kind of covering things that happened between 30 and 40, just to give you kind of a timeline here. Uh, And at the point when these prophets came down from Jerusalem, it would have been toward the end of that period. So I got a question. How many of you were around in the 1880s? Just checking to see if you're listening. How many of you were around in the 1980s? Okay, quite a few of us. All right. Um, do you remember when North Africa was going through a terrible famine, particularly Ethiopia? Uh, there was a lot of there were magazine covers that had pictures of these these poor, malnourished children. Their 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 heads looked humongous on their little tiny bodies, and, and they they were basically just skin and bones. Some of them even had distended bellies because they were going through starvation, and their body was beginning to internally consume itself. Just horrible, horrible things. It was heartbreaking. And there there's never been anything remotely like this in any of our lifetimes in the modern industrialized world. And so we just, we can't wrap our brains around what it would have been like for us to experience it here the way that they experienced it there. Because we have first world problems here, don't we? We like to gripe about things that are really insignificant in the grand scheme of things. One of my favorites was when a person was complaining that their life was over. I saw this online. Their life was over because Skittles had gone from the lime Skittle to a green apple Skittle. They said, literally, my life is over. And I thought, that's really sad. Frankly, I like the green apple Skittles. And I will tell you my first world problem. I'm sad that they went back to lime. Anyway. So we gripe about stuff that's, that's, that's just, it's, it's ultimately... Pointless in the grand scheme of things because we are so far removed from the idea of starvation in America in the 21st century. We don't know what it's like to not have our needs met. You know, it's it's really it's really in the the third world areas that we kind of see what it would have been like, how how utterly devastating a famine would have been in Bible times. Okay, so so let's let's just picture this. They have no rain, right? They have no no harvest for a year or two, and there's of course no government assistance. And so you could be talking about the difference between life and death very, very quickly. Now usually people in, in the, it's weird to say Bible times, that's a pretty large chunk of time, but usually people back then knew to save up food when they'd had a big harvest. And so uh, they, would, they would keep some aside, but there's only so much you could save. So the announcement of an impending famine Would really be a a big deal, in in an agrarian you know an agricultural society, a famine is a big deal, and that that helps us understand why why the church in Antioch responded the way they did to this prophecy. Uh, When it comes to to truly caring for others, we see these Christians being willing to put some skin in the game. And before we get into the specifics of what they did, let's I'm going to just really quickly go over with you how this outline is going to break down, okay? The the overall text today gives us a picture of what it means to truly care for others, all right? Based on what happens in verses 29 and 30, I'm I'm convinced that truly caring for others as Christians takes faith, and it takes love. It's interesting. I I was noticing this while I was, you know, working on the sermon, and, and neither the word faith nor the word love shows up in today's text. But those two concepts show up hugely in the way that that these Christians responded to the news of this impending famine. So we're going to talk about that, okay? Faith is a great word. Faith is a great word because it combines the ideas of belief and trust into one word. You know, basically faith in the Bible indicates a belief that leads to action. Any of you remember hearing about the Great Blondin? Oh, good, okay, I'm gonna read some excerpts. Uh, This is from NiagaraFallsInfo.com, okay? Um, The most famous of Niagara's daredevils was Jean-Francois Gravelot, better known as the Great Blondin. He was born in northern France. Blondin first came to Niagara in early 1858 and instantly became obsessed with crossing the Niagara River on a tightrope. On June 30th, 1859, Blondin successfully walked across the river on a tightrope. And then during the summer of 59, he completed eight additional crossings. He began on the American side and completed his crossing in 20 minutes. And by the way, uh, his balancing pole weighed about as much as a good-sized toddler and it was 30 feet long, okay? This is a, a really amazing thing that this guy did. Uh, During the summer of 1860, Blondin returned to Niagara for a second successful year of tightrope walking across the Niagara River for hundreds of thousands of sightseers. One of his acts included pushing a wheelbarrow across as he crossed. Excuse me, pushing a wheelbarrow along as he crossed. Now, according to legend, and I'm sure some of you have heard this before, according to legend, before he crossed with the wheelbarrow, the great Blondin asked this massive crowd, if they believed that he could do it. And there was this resounding cry, you know, yeah, we believe you can do it, yeah. So so next he asked, do you believe I can cross this tightrope, cross the river with a man in the wheelbarrow? And of course everybody, "Ah," you know, yeah, we know you can do it. And so the crowd went wild, yes, no doubt. But when he asked for a volunteer to sit in the wheelbarrow, all of a sudden, nobody raised their hand. People weren't so sure. And I don't know if that story is true, honestly. It's a good story. I know that the great Blondin truly did exist, and he did cross with a wheelbarrow, but I know one thing that is true. His manager, there's a guy named Harry Calcord, who was the great Blondin's manager. He believed in Blondin's talent so much that he agreed to ride on his back. That's right, ride piggyback across Niagara Falls, and they did it. They made it, y'all. I mean, this was was August 14th, 1860. That is what faith looks like. That is what faith looks like, okay? And, And for the Christian, it's not just saying that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose from the dead. It means trusting in Him alone for your salvation. In Him alone. When that happens, his spirit comes to live in you, which means that you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.17. And when that happens, your desires, your affections, your attitudes, your speech, your behavior will all begin to resemble Christ's incrementally. It's the process that we know as sanctification. So, so that's to refresh our memory about faith. Now, now, as far as love goes, I think most of us are aware that biblical love isn't primarily about feelings. Okay? It's about actions. And we as a society, we're really quick to use the word love flippantly. You know, oh, I love that show. Oh, I love sandwiches. You know, whatever. We, we use it in a way that means almost nothing. But in the New Testament, the Greek word is the word agape. And when it's translated to English, it really looks like agape. <laughs> but it's agape. It isn't talking about infatuation or, or sexual desire. It's not even talking about enthusiasm. It's talking about a, a more charitable type of, of love that, that's really typified by, by selfless sacrifice. When God sent His one and only Son, so that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's love. That was love. So, so faith and love, while, while neither word is present in this text, these concepts very much are. Okay, so we're going to dissect uh, these last two verses because uh, the attitude and the actions of these Christians uh, kind of shows what truly caring for others looks like and how it requires a lot of faith and a lot of love. So, um, And to flesh this out a little bit more, because it's only a couple of verses, um, we're going to use some passages from 2 Corinthians as well, because Paul is actually, he's addressing a very similar situation there in chapters 8 and 9. Um, so, uh, back to Acts 11, we're starting in verse 29. So the disciples... I know that's kind of a weird place to pause. But I just want us to, to look at that, because the word... So indicates a connection to what happened before, right? And since we've already read through this text, we know that what the disciples, we know what they're gonna do, okay? But the word so ties their actions, ties the the thing that they did into the preceding verse like this. Agabus said a famine was gonna gonna come and affect the whole world, right? And so, as a result, the disciples took action. And I believe that this, this little phrase, showed that the disciples had faith in God's messenger. Or even messengers, plural. You know, these prophets from Jerusalem. Now, anybody who has lived past the age of five has figured out you can't always trust people, right? Right? People will let you down, right? You know, to illustrate, we're all people, and we've all let someone down, right? Okay. It's never wise, nor would it be appropriate or proper for us to entrust ourselves to other people in the same way that we entrust ourselves to the Lord, okay? But at the same time, there's a sense in where we're never going to be able to do anything in life. If we can't, you know, trust some people some of the time, we we got to put some faith, right, in some people. And this text proves that there was a lot of faith in the church at Antioch, and how do we know? Because, because some guys showed up from a church 300 miles away, you know, from Jerusalem, and, and a lot of the folks in Antioch probably hadn't even met them before, right? Because a bunch of them were Christians that had come from, from Cyprus and Cyrene or whatever. And so, you, you know, all of a sudden, there's this one newcomer, this, this one fella named Agabus, who he tells them that God told him that there was gonna be a major famine. Now, I don't know about you, but I'd probably, my personality would be a little skeptical if someone showed up out of the blue and told me that a world-changing event was on the way, right? Now, I know we can read scripture and see that there are world-changing events on the way, but I'm talking about if a person I didn't really know came and told me something that specific, I'd probably have some more questions about it. And, and, but here's the thing, to be fair, okay? Some of these Christians probably would have known these prophets from before, and so they would also have known their track record, okay? And after all, the, you know, the Lord very clearly states in the Old Testament that, that anyone who claims to speak for God, there's a really easy test, right, to find out if they're telling the truth. You know, if, if what he says is going to happen happens, well, then their word is God's truth. But if they claim that something is going to happen and it doesn't happen, you can safely ignore them, right? It's very simple. So it's probable that that some of them had heard Agabus make predictions that had come true in the past. But even so, even so, it still takes a leap of faith to accept that something is from the Lord, even if it comes from someone you have a previous reason to trust. Does that make sense? Okay, I'll tell you, I believe it does make sense, and it has to to some degree, because you're here right now listening to me, and you're trusting that the Lord is speaking to you through me. I'm a flawed human being, too, just like all of you. So you have to trust in some way that that the Lord... Look, it it makes sense that it, it takes faith to believe a person is conveying a message from God. So if you believe the Lord is speaking through me or any pastor, that takes faith on your part. Anyway, so let's continue. So the disciples determined... That's a loaded word. The disciples... Determine, what does that indicate? It wasn't just that they decided, right? But they determined their course of action. And I looked up this word in the Greek because it, it seemed like an interesting choice. Uh, the word is horizo, and we get our word horizon from it. That's the root, is horizo. And it, and it, means, uh, it means something that is ordained in advance or a designated boundary that's marked out. Okay, which makes sense. It's where we get horizon. So it's really interesting to me that this verb, or a form of this verb, shows up eight times in the New Testament, and this is the only time when the actor in the sentence isn't God. The other seven times, it's God who is determining, who is horizo. This one instance, it's human beings. And so the word is really intense because it nearly always refers to something that God has determined is fixed and unalterable. And then you got to ask, so why did, why did they use the word here? Why did Luke choose that word in reference to flawed human beings? And, and I think it's the Holy Spirit wants us to know that they were dead set on this. They were 100% committed. And since we know that they were determining, which, which is they were, what they were determining to do was provide help, for these believers in Judea, we can say that the Antioch Christians expressed love by choosing to give committedly. They chose to give committedly. And this, this wasn't just like some wild idea and they started with good intentions and then kind of let it fall down. This, this was a decision that they had committed to. Okay, And commitment is a valuable thing, particularly when it comes to giving. And if we look at Paul's second letter to the church at Corinth, we see him reminding people of the importance of following through on their commitments to give. In fact, it almost seems heavy-handed, especially to modern ears, right? I mean, y'all, y'all that have been here a while, you probably know that I am not always psyched about preaching on giving. Because, uh, well, for one thing, it, it's one of the, bi- the biggest excuses for immature believers and non-believers to avoid church. Because they say, oh, they always talk about money. Well, listen, it's, it's incredibly biblical, and Jesus talked about giving quite a bit. Okay, so anyway, in 2 Corinthians, the overarching theme of this part of the letter shows the importance of demonstrating love through giving. And Paul starts out chapter 9 like this. He says, now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up uh, most of them. But I'm sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift that you had promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction." You see what I mean about heavy-handed? I mean. He sounds pretty almost harsh there, but he's right. Because the Corinthian church, they had made you know, noise about helping some fellow believers in need, and so Paul is saying, all right, put your money where your mouth is, guys. So here's the thought. Of all the various kinds of people in the world, who would you suppose should have the greatest commitment to giving? Christians, those people to whom much had been given, right? Yeah, that's, that's biblical, by the way. To whom much is given, much will be required, right? We Christians have been given the gift of eternal life because our sins are washed away through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But listen, that, that's not intended as a bludgeon, you know, to guilt Christians into giving more. That's not why, why I'm saying this. It's not why Paul said this. It's a fact of faith, and it applies not just to individuals, but to, to this body as a whole. So, for anybody who doesn't know this, um, a few years ago we committed as church leadership uh, to set aside 10% of our annual budget to missions and to ministries that are outside our walls. And this, this was a substantial increase for us at the time, okay? And we made this decision in the middle of a financially uncertain time, too, but, but in faith that God was going to bless that commitment, and He has. We've never had to drop that percentage since we decided on it. And the additional, the missions offerings that we take up, uh, you know, once a month have actually allowed Crossroad to give nearly twice what we committed. Because people here are, are listening to God's Spirit when it comes to giving. And please don't think this is about, you know, Crossroad and our faithfulness. It's a reminder of God's faithfulness to us. If we strive to truly care for others, God honors that. Let's keep going. So so the disciples determined everyone according to his ability. Again, we we know that this sentence is in reference to giving to those in need, so let's just take a moment just on this phrase. What does that mean, everyone according to his ability? Well, first, according to his ability means in proportion to what a person can do. Right? And at the same time, it means not what a person can't do. And this is good to recognize because it seems like a lot of, of Christians have kind of glommed on to this the Old Testament tithing mentality. Not that there's anything wrong with tithing, okay? There's nothing wrong with tithing as a personal decision. But it can go wrong in two ways, okay? One of two ways. E- either a family that's barely scraping by, feels as though they're required by God to tithe, and so they do it fearfully rather than cheerfully. Or it can come from a heart of legalism, which is not the right giving attitude. The other side of that is a family that's enjoyed tremendous financial blessing may feel like a tithe is all that God asks for, right? And so so they may feel justified spending exorbitantly on themselves with the other 90%. And this is also not a biblical perspective on giving. So I think that the point that the disciples were getting at here is that Christians should seek to give generously and particularly to those in need. Obviously, you, you, you shouldn't give what you don't have, okay? And Paul says in 2 uh, in Corinthians, he says this earlier, the point isn't to make others wealthy at your expense, but to voluntarily share your excess with people who have needs so that there will be fairness, okay? Now, picking up again in chapter 9 where we left off, Paul wrote, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly and under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Again, cheerful, not fearful, right? This isn't about, you know, God's going to smite you if you don't give more than you gave last year or whatever. That's not, that's not at all what it's talking about. It's about the heart of the giver. And the first sentence in that, that passage, is a very practical one, it, we receive from God in proportion to what we give. That's basically what he's saying. We'll come back to that. But I, I'll say that I have personally observed that there is a correlation between giving and receiving from God. However, it is not intended to be treated as a formula. Okay? You need to understand that. The, the, the health and wealth teaching that says, well, if you give God this much, he's going to give you this much. Mm-mm. Not biblical. Okay? You need to understand that but this is a reminder that God rewards us when we're faithful with what we've been given. Anyway, so let's keep going. The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. Okay? So so finally we we read the full thought in this sentence. And it's it's important for us to contextualize this because remember once again, they're taking the prophet's word, okay, that a famine is coming that will make this offering necessary. So that, that's the first thing. But secondly, bear in mind that Acts 8 told us that the apostles were pretty much the only people that were left in Jerusalem uh, once the persecution began. And so, you know, I'm sure some of them probably returned after Saul's conversion. But, but almost certainly, a lot of the brothers in Judea would have been new believers, right? And they, they, they weren't known to the brothers who fled Jerusalem to Antioch. And there were probably a whole lot of new brothers in Antioch who never even been to Jerusalem. Because remember, these Hellenized Jews, they all grew up in Greek culture. You know, they weren't a part of Judean culture. So, at least to some degree, the Christians in Antioch were being asked to give to strangers. Now, most of us today are probably doing the same thing to some extent. You know, when you give to Crossroad, you know where the money's going. You know, it's paying my salary, uh, it's paying the worship leader's salary. Um, You know, it's it's keeping lights on, it's paying the, the bills, and we're promoting the gospel both locally and abroad. I mean, I'm sure you know that. But see, here's the thing. While you exercise faith and you exercise love in giving to your church, you know us. You know us. And it takes even more faith, in my view, to give on mission Sundays where the money is going to ministries where you don't know anybody. It's helping pay their salaries there, you know, and their bills and their outreach initiatives and, or to help Joyce and buy food and blankets and pass them out to widows on the street. That is more similar to, to what's going on in this passage. Because I want to draw your attention to the example that, that Paul gave to the Corinthian church again. Before chapter 9, uh, where he was encouraging them to, to have the right giving attitude, he mentions the Macedonian Christians and how they felt about giving to strangers. And there, there's some overlap in the idea of generosity here, too. Um, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. See, if you, I know it's kind of hard to keep up with with it because Paul uses a lot of words, but he's bragging to the Corinthians about the Macedonian church. Not, Not just because they gave more than they could afford to, but the awesome attitude that they had when they did it, right? I mean, they had so much love for strangers that they were willing to give out of their poverty to provide for the needs of other Christians. And they did it with joy. Now listen, this this message is not intended to guilt anyone. So so please don't let the devil get a foothold, you know, with with the idea that the sermon is all about money, because it's not. It's about our hearts. Okay? This is about hearts. There's a reason that John wrote, as we read earlier, if, if anyone has the world's goods and observes his brother in need but closes his heart against him, how can the love of God be in him? And he goes on to say, little children, let's love not in word and in talk, but in actions and truth. You know, what's in our hearts, that's what bleeds over into our actions. If Christ lives in our hearts, then his spirit ought to be guiding us towards generosity and, and kindness with joy, not selfishness, not legalistically giving out of fear. You know, and, and look, if, if you're at all like me, then you might be thinking to yourself, when, when you are confronted with this, you might be thinking, oh man, I, I'm a failure. You know? I've got enough trouble trusting God with my finances, and I'm not even in poverty. Listen, don't assume that these Macedonians were just super great people because Paul explains where this outpouring of generosity comes from. He says, he very clearly states, it was the grace of God. It was the grace of God and the grace of God can move anybody, including the Corinthians, including Americans, right? So again, this this isn't about piling on the guilt because we're all so blessed. That's That's not what I'm doing. It's about a heart check. And today's today's text has value in that it provides us with specific examples of of, of the faithful, loving attitude that we need to have in order to truly care for others. Because our faith and our love are going to be revealed by what we do. Amen? Right? Our faith and love will be revealed by what we do. Anyway, uh, don't beat yourself up. Okay, if the Holy Spirit is, is, is talking to you right now, just be convicted. Just be convicted. Uh, let's keep going. Verse 30, and they did so sending it. Okay, so what's Luke saying here? He, when, when he says they did so, that means that they did what they had determined they would do, right? Which was they gave committedly, generously, and on behalf of strangers, and they sent it on. You know, and y'all, once that money was given, it was gone, you know, as far as they were concerned, right? They were just entrusting it, okay? Because they believed in God's provision, right? They believed in God's provision enough that they were willing to, to, to put their money, metaphorically at least, into his hands, knowing that he would provide them with enough to meet their needs even as they did so. And we don't know how much these individuals gave. My guess is they gave as much as they were comfortable giving but I'll bet that those who had stronger faith gave proportionally more because they had faith that God would take care of them. I think that's just kind of a no-brainer. I mean, none of these guys had a 401k. You know that, right? Like, I doubt they had a lot of investment property sitting around. You know, I mean, Barnabas, we know specifically, he had already sold a family plot of land and gave the money to the apostles, right? So he liquidated his assets there, to, to distribute to people in need. And that was all the way back in Acts chapter 4. Just bear this in mind, though. It was voluntary. It's very important. It's voluntary. But these folks had faith in God's provision. They, they knew that he wouldn't let them starve if they stepped out on faith to provide those, uh, for those people who otherwise might starve. Our last section from today, uh, from 2 Corinthians 9, explains why. Because Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, He has distributed freely, He has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You you recognize that he's not just talking about, about this. He's talking about what God is doing in you. You'll be enriched in every way. He says to be generous in every way, which through us will provide thanksgiving to God. Note where his emphasis is. Some folks read this and they say, oh, look, if you give, you'll be enriched in every way. This is how you get rich. That is not what Paul's talking about. We should not view this in a strictly transactional sense, okay? But, but, but despite that, it's fair to say that our sovereign God is gracious enough to bless us abundantly whenever we give abundantly to others. I think a lot of us have experienced that. And the whole process, it, it, it ends up bringing glory to God because we see Him at work. We see Him resupplying us. We see our, our gifts producing fruit for the kingdom, and it's awesome. People hear the gospel. People get saved. You know, it's good to be a part of that. All right, so wrapping it up. And they did so sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So so what they did was they collected their funds, right? And then they gave them to folks that they knew who would be passing them along to folks that uh, they didn't know, you know, a third party. And then, then those folks were entrusted to use good stewardship in reallocating these resources several hundred miles away. I mean, simply, simply put, they didn't just have faith in God's messenger and in God's provision, but also in his people. They had faith in God's people to be faithful with the resources that they gave. And this is a reminder for us that it is okay to trust God's people to use our gifts for the kingdom's sake. You know, when you give to this church, for instance, you are trusting us to use it for God's glory. And when this church gives a portion of missions or when you give directly to missions through uh, Mission Sunday like we did today, um, you are trusting the organizations to take these gifts and direct them into areas of ministry where they're needed. And that's a good thing. Because frankly, our gifts can go a lot farther when we trust others to get them where they need to go instead of always trying to, to do that ourselves. There's a reason that God created this beautiful network of individual Christians and of different congregations that are part of the whole church with a capital C. And hey, if if you're a part of the body of Christ, you're a part of the church as a whole too, right? But what about those who have not yet turned to Christ in repentant faith? Listen, I I need to just make sure everybody understands this because it's really important. The amount that you give to kingdom work, or whether you give at all, that doesn't save you. Okay, No good work that you do saves you. We are not saved by works. You can only be saved from hell and given eternal life in heaven by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, our crucified and risen Savior. He is the only way. He is the truth. He is the life. So if you've never placed faith in him, if you've never turned away from your sins, if you've never publicly confessed Jesus as Lord and been immersed in his body, then today is your day. Today's your day.